Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 107 of the No Normal Show for Thursday, June 10th, brought to you by Revive Health. Uh, this is our weekly deep dive into how hospital and health system marketers can navigate what we call the no normal. I'm Danielle Tyberski, Senior Vice President of Growth here at Revive and your guest host for today's show. Um, I'm joined by Gretchen Smithson, Marketing Manager at Revive Health. Um, she's our guest producer today with Chase um, out on paternity leave. So congratulations to Chase and hi, Gretchen. Um, we're also joined today by Christian Barnett. Christian is a senior VP um, and heads up our strategy department at Revive. Um, he has a really impressive background, has worked with some of the biggest brands in the world like Dell, Levo, LG, Burt's Bees, Green Mountain Coffee, Ford, Lincoln, Bacardi. I, I, Christian, I could keep going and going. Um, and his career includes everything from research to advertising to branding. Um, from London to New York, and, and we're lucky to have him in Nashville now. Um, thanks for joining us, Christian. Hi, Danielle. I like that we're all guests today. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> There's a trio of guests, so we're working through this together. <laughs> um, so just some quick notes uh, before we dive in. Uh, on the podcast, we share industry trends, research, uh, stories from those uh, within and outside of the industry um, and other ideas and content uh, to help health system marketers navigate the no normal successfully. Um, if you want to know what we mean by no normal, uh, want to understand it a bit more, the key principles, check out uh, our blog post, which Gretchen uh, is sharing in the comment function. So we're going to uh, jump in here. Today we're talking about research. Um, we all know how important it is getting to know our audiences um, and there are so many different ways for us to think about that and different types of research that get us there. Um, but we're going to be tackling ethno ethnographic research today. Um, we use this at Revive when we want to get a little deeper than a surface understanding or when we really need to understand our audience's lifestyles. Um, and Christian has a lot of great experience with this. So Christian, um, we're going to get going here. And why don't you tell us a bit about what ethnographic research is um, and how it's different from other types of research? Yeah, thanks, Danielle. There may be a couple of little bi personal biases coming out, and I apologize in advance for those. Uh, here's one of them coming right up. It, you know, it's very easy for um, people, consumers, patients to answer kind of surveys or even, you know, they, they tend to answer them in a way that the survey is kind of given to them, right? You receive a survey and already you're being, in a way, contaminated in your response by the responses you have to respond to. Sorry, a lot of responses there. Um, so you're, 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 kind, you're kind of like, you get, you know, it's part of a, almost like a little game sometimes where, 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 you're, where you're kind of just kind of going through and checking things off. And that doesn't really produce deep insight or, you know, what we're all after, which is kind of deep differentiation or clues to which drive towards differentiation. The next level of kind of, I guess, deepness would be going to focus groups where you talk to people. But even then, it's an artifice, you know, whether it's over Zoom or whether you're behind a one-way mirror, you know, you've, you've gathered in a rather strange way. And a lot of your, a lot of your, what you're going to say is kind of recalled or kind of related. And it's not always actually what happened. I mean, you know, how you recall something isn't, isn't always what actually happened for reality. So, 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 so even focus groups, which can be really insightful and really good, don't always get to that level of what's the and the truth is a variable thing, right? But what, what's the real truth? So then, then you go. So, so 
ethnographies gives you a chance to really see for yourself what's what's happening in a way and you know ethnographic research was kind of really originated in the late um, 18th century when I, I crudely kind of explorers and researchers kind of early stage anthropologists would, would go out and kind of look at kind of tribes and new people from around the globe for want of a better phrase and try and understand them and one of the best ways to understand them was to live with them now of course if you're living with a group of people you're still a data you're still a piece of contaminated data but you've got a better chance of seeing what's going on and observing what's going on particularly if you don't speak the language particularly you know you, you've got to, you're, you're actually experiencing what your subject matter so that's the kind of premise of the of the whole thing so it isn't just getting a deeper understanding it's also getting a more accurate picture uh, of what they're what what they're actually thinking, what they're doing, kind of who they are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of the I guess some of the I mean, there's a very famous <laughs> strategist from London who apparently used to go and live with families for like three months at a time. That's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> in the, in, in, there was a phase in what we do in the kind of 1970s, 80s of kind of experimentation with research. You know, how do we, how do we, you know, the, the, the hidden persuaders is, is the classic one, right? How do we get inside the psyche? How do we understand mm -hmm. people's real needs? I mean, what we do with that's a separate thing, but how do we get there? And I, I don't know, I've forgotten the guy's name, but he would, he you know, specialised in living with consumers and seeing how they behaved. And, uh, you know, of course, that's going to be, a, you know, oh my God, what's going on? What's he doing here again? But after a, peri after a period of time, that, that intrusion becomes less as the person is accepted more. So it's a strange thing, but arguably... And I would argue it's better, truer data than someone filling in a questionnaire or going to a focus group. I mean, I spent, I haven't lived with people, but I have spent time shopping. I have, not, 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 not research subjects anyway, but, but I, I have um, spent time shopping with people and even just kind of following someone around a, a, a store or a supermarket um, with their cart and watching how they, you know, observe the art, you know, the products on the shelves and how they, how long they spend and whether they pick something off the shelf and look at it, put it back or whether they go immediately for something, you just let them do it. And you, know, you start to build up like a, you know, a canon of, you know, a number of interviews and you start to see patterns and, you know, you can ask people in real time, why did you do that? Or what did you do? Or you wait until the end mm -hmm. or you come back a few, you know, a few days later and say, let's just explore what you thought happened. And, you know, then you compare it to what really happened and you get some really interesting stuff coming out. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think for most of us, three months is not realistic um, <laughs> amount of time to spend with our audiences before we get going on stuff. Um, but Christian, I know you do have a lot of, of of really good experience in this area. Can you give us some examples of of what you've done with some different brands? Yeah, I mentioned um, I, I mentioned the, the the supermarket kind of shopping. Mm -hmm. I've also done some um, kind of look understanding how people really how people. There's there's one there's two I'll call out. One is I did, and the other I didn't do, but I was an oversight person for because it was really excellent. So the one that I did was in the UK. We were trying to look at different quantitative segments that this kind of global database threw up. We were trying to understand them in a qualitative way. We did some sessions with them, then did follow up kind of observation. So I'd spend um, a, a day with someone, kind of in a way, just following their lives. You know, I remember meeting up with this young guy in a pub. We played. You know, we ordered a pint, and then you know we. We um, played a few frames of snooker, 
went back to his house. He showed me his trophy cabinet. You know, spoke about his house, why it was there, and what he did. It was really it invited me out for the evening. It was quite an experience. But you know, that that was a really super insight into how 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 somebody lived. Um, mm. And that was, and really, that's about understanding media selection and how they live their life and what media and what values they're they're applying. Um, the, the other example was a colleague of mine, and I was the kind of oversight for it. Was about the lifestyles of the of the of the, it was kind of the rich and famous, and it was in um it was Chicago and Atlanta, and it was for a, a spirits, a, you know, a premium spirits brand, and uh, we recruited. I know it was about. 10 people, five in Chicago, five in Atlanta, the young and the wealthy. And then my colleague, James, pretty much hang out, hang out, hung out with him for a, for a couple of days, right? They would meet up. Not a bad assignment. Not a bad assignment. <laughs> By the way, the same, the same fellow, James, he's off to Botswana um, shortly to experience a five-star luxury safari. So I guess he's really taking the ethnographic piece to like another level. <laughs> another reason for this type of research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was very powerful because often, you know, it's a, things like but when you go to a bar or, what, you know, when you, mm -hmm. it's a real, some of the, so much of what we do is about lifestyle decisions and where things fit in our life. We'll talk about healthcare in a minute, but, you know, when you think about premium brands and luxury brands, how they appear and where they appear and, 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 and how people relate to them, what it says about you in a bar, your choices and how you dress and how the brand fits with you or you fit with it. It's all terribly important. So, yeah. And, and that, if you just do 10 ethnographies and back it up with some more substantive research, which we'll talk about as well, it can be super powerful, particularly at the beginning of a project when you're really looking for insights, which yeah. is going to give you different paths and different routes to follow. Yeah. So, so you d d dig into that a little bit, Christian. You, you mentioned using them at the beginning of a project. When should you think about using uh, this type of research within a project, but also what type of, of projects? Oh, okay. So, so remind me of the second one. I might might forget as I get a bit excited about the first. I won't let you get away from it. Yeah. So, so, so I always think about these things like a like a compass, right? If you think about a compass, and at the at the start of a project, you've got you've got you know 360 degrees. You can go in any direction you want to. All too often, if you get further in and in and in and into a to a project, that you know because you commit to a strategy or you commit to creative work or you commit to an idea, your field of inquiry becomes less and less and less and less. As you go yeah. that's fine if you're checking out ads towards the end of a process but it, it you know if you really want to get a, where are we in the world as a brand or an organization and wh where's legitimate for us to play and how do people relate to us you really want to do that at the beginning of a project where you've kind of got this blank canvas or yeah. relatively you know this terrain to work to, to, to work with and I guess ethnography allows you to wander around that terrain with with your audiences yeah, because um, you, you do that later in a project and there's less you can actually influence, right? What you learn, right. like how do you get that actually into the work or into the strategy the later it yeah, is? Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I'm a firm believer in, you know, so much of what we do is really about understanding human motivations and human behavior. You know, we, we can't do our job without understanding how humans work right yeah. and and this is one of the best ways of really spending time with people understanding them understanding their motivations understanding how they behave how they feel and that's so powerful at the start of a project right it really gives you a good point kind of point of direction on that compass i was talking about yeah are there certain projects that this is better for um or or projects that that maybe don't lend themselves to this type of of research 
yeah so we're going to talk in a minute i think about um about um chi the project yeah. but I, I i would say healthcare as a as, as a as a as a sector probably lends itself so well to this you know much better than many other sectors and i don't think we use it enough right because so much of of health is every day for yeah. a start so much of health is is tied up with how we feel about ourselves in any given moment and just use a really easy example if you have a chronic condition which affects your kind of day-to-day -day life then understanding how understanding how people navigate their lives um how that affects them what they do about it you know the decisions they're making about it you know if you have a chronic knee or something and then when does that really come into play when does that really affect you when do you think about it when what can't you do what can you do and seeing people in 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 their world and asking them to talk about it is just more powerful than the focus group thing it, it it it's what's it not good for it's not good for really tactical decisions you don't need to do a deep deep four-hour ethnography when you're you know do i use this word or this word or this image or this image or is it this message or this message you know you can always pop those things into an ethnography if you want to but really that you know the more tactical you get the less useful they are and actually they probably become cumbersome and overly complicated but at yeah. the beginning of a project when you're trying to find direction fantastic yeah so so better for informing kind of strategy and approach um and then using something like focus groups to help get into the creative choice or or the channel choice that type of thing yeah though i would i would say that um i mean that, you know some of the ethnographic work we've done at revive you know we thought would open the door on creative thinking but yeah. actually open the door on media thinking uh, it's it's it set a start point for um for analytics to say right we know where we should go and apply our thinking you, we've, you've given us a start point you've given us a story you've given us people to work with we, we can use that and of course with clients they you know in many cases i absolutely adore this sort of work because because you're really bringing it's the next best thing to bringing people into their meetings right yeah <laughs> that's right so that, so that's a good segue christian how does this work with other types of research how it uh, it doesn't seem like you're going to want ethnographic research as the only solution to no. get to know your audiences or or to helping to inform the solutions that you come up with so how do you think about this in the context of other types of research yeah so so you know, by itself, you know, if you're if you're asking someone, you know, like me or a member of my team to go and do, say, 10 ethnographies, that's kind of 10 days out of your schedule. Right. And the amount of, you know, then you've got 40 hours. Say you do four hour pieces you know, or more. You've got so much data to kind of go through and analyze and take meaning out of. It's just very, very kind of intensive. And, yeah. you know, if you do 10, say, 10 interviews, you, you there must be a, you know, a question about statistical validity yeah. so what, what i think it does you know it sets alongside ethnogra ethnographic research you might want to do something which is like more focus group oriented because you can get 10 people in a room for an hour and ask them some of these questions and see if it validates the ethnographic work um, or you can for decision making kind of get go one on one and just ask people to take you through decision trees most importantly getting some numbers on it is probably the most important thing to do mm -hmm. where you know you can create insights and often 10 people or 15 people give you enough to start thinking about a possible segmentation and then the quant side can really deliver against that.
So let's talk a little bit about how you do this. Um, okay. Are there, are there key principles or guidelines or things to keep in mind? I mean, how do you go about starting ethnographic research? What do you what do you need to consider? You know, I, I, as you're asking me, I'm thinking to some degree, anybody who's ever people watched, it's kind of like you're halfway there, right? Yeah. I, I think, you know, when you sit outside a cafe or a, a bar and you're just by yourself with it, or you're just, you know, you're just kind of on idle and you start watching people and start seeing how they behave or what's going, you know, we're doing it anyway. And in some ways we're kind of hardwired for this stuff, right? So mm. in a way it's, it's bringing that side out of you and allowing it full expression in a situation. I mean, the, the, the big things are don't talk too much. You know, yeah. let, let the action unfold in front of you. Um, there may be some prompts, like if you're, if you're following someone around a supermarket or a store, for example, you, you, know, you, 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 know, you, you might come out of the store and ask them a couple of questions. Or, but you really want to keep the thing to a minimum, really. You really want to just observe and be as best you can like a spectator or a fly on the wall mm. and just let it happen i mean when you do when you do kind of talk or interview or spend time with then i always think you know you very often you're going into someone else's house and yeah. being just very respectful and very thoughtful of where you are and very thoughtful of the effect you're having on somebody else you know is 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 you know is really important you're not presenting at someone you're really trying to hear and almost feel what it's like to be in their shoes mm. so you know some people are really you know you can almost you can feel your way through a situation right and i guess in these in ethnographic work you really want to kind of get on you know all those receptors you've got you need to go on massive like turn them up full right so all your little antennae are wobbling and picking up cues and looking at things and you know it's also a privilege right to go into someone's house and ask it sounds silly to look in their fridge, right? But you know, whether it's looking in their fridge or their medicine cabinet or, you know, whatever you're looking at, you never forget it's a privilege. You know, sure, they're, you know, likely to be paid, but they're they're giving something of themselves, right? They may not realize how much they're giving of themselves, but they're giving something of themselves to you. And I think we just have to respect that in a really serious way, in a way far more than, hey, you've come to a focus group. Okay, here's the money. Off you go again. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a much more personal experience. Yeah, and very powerful, yeah. Mm. So uh, let's let's jump in a little bit on the healthcare side. Um, what you mentioned earlier, you don't think we, we use this enough in healthcare. Um, what about this research lends itself well to, to the healthcare space? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think what happens in, in not just the healthcare world, but in, in general, is that we are so keen to do things quickly that we sometimes forget if we do them really well that might save us something at the back end right mm. it might save us a lot of redos yeah you know, it may save us a lot of go around agains you know and um yeah i i think i think healthcare because as i say how people relate to their health at a at a kind of almost a kind of philosophical or values level right when we we, we, we could go and find 10 people and say talk about you know your your health or how you think about your body or how you think about your mind or you know different ages clearly behave and think in completely different ways about what's themselves and their physique yeah. and their their mental space and their spirituality so that that for a start is is just the 
let's spend more time with people. But then if you get to specific issues, so it's easy for me to just throw out things like chronic conditions like yeah. knees or joints or shoulders or cancer or things which really, really affect people's lives in a, in a, in a, in a, in a physically powerful way and also in a mentally and emotionally yeah. powerful way. We can learn so much um, that we don't get right now because we, we, you know, you look at the work that gets put out by the sector and it tends to be more, more the same than different. Yep. And sometimes we can be a little different and we can tell the truth. And sometimes the best way to get the truth is to, is to go find, go find it in these ways. Is that yeah. Helpful? yeah, it does. I mean, it, it is, it, it is for us um, to really support patients and our audiences. We, we need to be thinking about more than just ads um, and so much about patient outcomes and treatment adherence and health decisions to, to what you said, Christian, personal health decisions that they're making. So much of that is tied up in their lifestyle more than just in the in a decision to click on an ad. So I think, uh, you know, to your point, understanding that within healthcare really helps us have a better impact from a lifestyle standpoint, from an adherence standpoint, um, beyond just how do we get um, this month's ad campaign out there. I mean, there's, as you're talking, there are two things which come to mind immediately. W one is really simple. One is, you know, drug compliance, right? One of the, yep. you know, just understanding why people don't, right? Mm. You know, just, I mean, if, if arguably, arguably, Big Pharma, if they said, okay, Christian, go and spend a couple of weeks, like the duration of a, a drug course with, with this person or check in with them every day or make sure, you know, you could learn an awful lot about you know the behavior around the attitude and behavior around compliance that's the yep. first thing the second thing is i think patient experience i mean yes i mean please anybody out there who wants to you know improve patient experience you know i would say let's let us go at it for a bit and we can spend spend you know if imagine spending a good time with someone who's who's a frequent visitor to a to a hospital slash health system at whatever level and following them through that journey. You don't even need to ask them questions to see how they're reacting when they walk into a room or when someone says their name or when they're sat down with a doctor or a nurse practitioner. You can just observe their feelings, you know, their relief or their anger or their frustration. And I think we could do so much more to help our patients and also help, the, you know, the, the, the systems mm -hmm. to get those patient journeys right. And, it, you know, that would be, I think, relatively, a, you know, a small financial drop in the ocean to, to spend some time really understanding how patients experience the experience. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, <clears throat> we talk about adherence and um, and chronic conditions. Christian, you brought that up, which I think leads us really well into the example that we want to talk about, which is, um, you know, work that we've been able to do here at Revive, where using ethnographies and the ethnographic research had a real impact and actually shifted, um, you know, the way that we thought about this project uh, with community health innovation. So, Christian, do you want to give us a, a quick overview of this? I'll try to. And please, if I get carried away, tell, you know, because you are so important to that project as well. So just <laughs> butt in and tell me to move on or to yeah. make, take, it, take it on yourself. Um, I mean, the first the, 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 the situation was that um, in, in Monterey County, 
um, diabetes or pre-diabetes were at really high levels, almost 50%. And, um, and two of the, um, the, the health systems there banded together uh, with an attempt to um, reduce this prevalence. So that was the, the backdrop and in a way the challenge. It was it, from then. It wasn't a real big step to recommend doing some ethnographic for research, because diabetes is such a lifestyle condition, right? Yeah. So, and it's also affected by so many different things, right? Food, exercise, attitude. You know what you know from other people, uh, what you don't know from other people. So it seemed a really good candidate, and you know, well done to the. Um, for the commissioning clients who said, yeah, go and, go and do this. Um, so, th so that's what we did. We went and, we went and um, spoke to 10 families um, dotted around, around the County. And um, we spoke to all kind of income and educational levels. And we didn't screen for, do you have, or do you not have diabetes or know anybody who don't know, or, or you don't know anybody who has diabetes because yeah. we wanted to find out, what the what the kind of normal um, person knew or didn't know, and that in itself was was a really I think you know it's a really smart decision to make because if you'd only spoken to people with diabetes, you'd have got like a skewed view, yeah. right? Yeah. The, the people who aren't diabetic and arguably are as important as those who are when we're trying to reduce prevalence in a in in in, in a county there. That's right. I mean, you're also looking at um, a lot of people that were um, suffering from diabetes but weren't diagnosed. Exactly, yeah. um, and, and and so being able to capture those people as well and the way that they thought about things and what they understood um, was also really important. Yeah. 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 So that's what we did. Um, I mean, do, do, do you want to just carry on or do you want to? Yeah, of, no, go for it. Right. So, so, so we went and did these interviews and I'm just going to give you a couple of snippets and kind of my favorite snippets. All right. Yeah. So one of my favorite snippets was uh, a single mother and her daughter. And they were like best buddies and best pals. Um, and they would go shopping together and they would help each other with their food choices and help each other with their food prep. And, the, you know, the, the thing I remember the most from that interview was the daughter, they lived in a, a little apartment and all the furniture was pushed up against the walls. Mm. And um, it's so that the daughter could do her hula hoop, kind of like fire, is it fire dancing? You know, when you have the fire <laughs> thing around your waist. And she demonstrated to us her like, you know, kind of hula hooping and not hitting the furniture. Now, what, what, it's very cute and very nice, but what's that got to do with the with the subject matter? Well, we were building up a sense of exercise and attitude to physical movement mm -hmm. um, and how much or how little they did or didn't exercise. Um, we were talk, we were talking about their food choices and the nutrition choices. Also in the corner of the room was a little Buddha and um, we spoke about spirituality and those things, you know, the hula hoop and the shopping and the little, the little Buddha, you don't necessarily, you don't necessarily talk about little Buddhas when you're talking about diabetes, unless you get in that situation. But the little Buddha gave us a really good entry point into a, into the conversation about purpose, purpose in life, you know, well-being, balance, being balanced. So it's really those little things become doors into big things, if you see what I mean. Yes. So that, that was one little thing which was fantastic. Um, the other, I loved this. We went, we went, <laughs> we went to this family, and by by chance, all four children were back home that weekend, and it was so funny because the the, the mum was a school teacher and the dad was a sales guy, and I learned so much about the dad's late night burger run. 
that he was clearly super embarrassed by and hadn't ever told anybody, but they knew anyway, right? Yeah, the kids are calling him out on that. That's right. Huh? We had, a, we had a fantastic conversation between the children, remembering when they were at school about how much to boil or not boil vegetables because you boil the nutrients out. We had a really fun little conversation between the mum and the daughter about how much cake they should share in the afternoon or not share in the afternoon and who was in charge of the cake and who was in charge of saying no to the cake. You know, because the mum had started that year, 2020, uh, 2019, you know, because she knew she was pre-diabetic. So she started a, um, a regime of exercise. And, and, and you know, that's really interesting because the husband said, I'm going to support you all the way. Then nipped out for his late night burgers. You know, he was trying, but he was failing. <laughs> um, and the cake story became really powerful because it was about mother and daughter trying to achieve things together, which leads to all sorts of other things about who do you really communicate with, who are you trying to influence and how do you influence them? So these yeah. are beautiful little insights into people's lives. And they're also just lovely. It's lovely to be present in those situations as well. Yeah, that, that gave us, um, that eventually led to us understanding the importance of the conversation amongst the family yeah. and the role that, that teenagers and children can play in helping to influence decisions that parents are making. Um, it was also important because we knew that, you know, unfortunately, now one in four teens is, um, is diagnosed with type two diabetes um, or prediabetes. And so that was another important audience for us to, to really understand um, yeah. and get to know. Yeah, there was a really powerful moment when um, towards the end of the interviews, I was in um, uh, like, a, like, like a condominium and we got talking about, um, I mean, during the interview, it was really interesting to watch because during the interview, the teenage kids got up and just wandered over to under the stairs and pulled out a bag of chips and ate it without even, they were not yeah. eating. And then they pulled out a coat, like a Pepsi and pulled it and started drinking. And I think towards the end of the interview, I said, so do you know how much, you know, sugar's in that? And um, I was like, no. So we had this little, we played this little game at the end of the at the end of the session where we got out milk and orange juice and coke and all sorts of things, put them on the counter, and we tried to guess how much sugar. And of course, what's interesting is that people thought that orange juice was really it's healthy. healthy yeah. The orange juice is like, oh my god, you know. <laughs> and you, 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 you because you, we, you know, we, we are literally looking at, in their fridge and looking in their the pantry mm -hmm. and just talking, talking. I mean, she was a pretty healthy eater. But when you're buying, you know, and he thought orange juice was really super healthy. But of course, you start playing that game, and it's like, why? It's as it's as it's as sweet as a Pepsi, a full-on Pepsi, you know. So, so that that's sort of that's the sort of stuff where you, yeah, we really really understood some of those things well. Yeah. So we went we went into this, Christian. I think um, the original ask from the client was about building awareness around the issue, mm -hmm. um, and and once you and your team dug in. Uh, with the ethnographic research, it shifted the way that we were thinking about what the challenge was. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, hugely. Now, I said that, you know, um, ethnographers are not always statistically significant. I think in this process, we must have spoken to over 40 people because we spoke to families, you know, we interviewed mm -hmm. families. So in, in some total, there, that was a good number, of, a, a good number of people. And there was no issue about awareness. Everyone's aware of diabetes. Yeah. It's what they, so it wasn't, an, it wasn't a, hey, diabetes is this, this, and this, and this. You know, it's, it's not about creating awareness. What we did find, though, was that people had kind of misinformation about it or just absence of information or like hearsay information about, you know, for example, oh, only old people 
get diabetes yeah. or or it's, you either have it or you don't have it, which, you know, in most you know, illnesses, you kind of either have it or you don't have it. You know, if you have it, you get treated. If you don't, you don't. Right. But diabetes is much more kind of on an incremental scale, particularly when you throw prediabetes into the mix. So yep. th there, were, there were many situations where people didn't understand the full story and didn't really know how it affected them and that was really the kind of the tur the insight or the kind of the turnkey which really helped us go ah so it's not about creating awareness of diabetes it's about creating awareness of the myths and the truths around it which then led to a you know a, a brief about if you thought you knew diabetes think again so we're setting up a kind of if you thought this well no no think again it's that and this is why this is what you might want to do about it or where you might go to to, to address these things Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, actually, Alan, thank you very much for posting that. Um, it did. You you can see the the link there that Alan, who's one of our clients that the um, that we partnered with on this, um, a link to the website that was the creative output of what Christian just talked about. Um, if you thought you knew diabetes, think again. Um, that led us to the Don't Feed the Diabetes campaign. Mm -hmm. um, and Christian, we actually did this research. Again, this kind of helped in, influence and help give us the, the right direction from a strategy standpoint. But we did it in the context of a bunch of other research as well, um, understanding the market, doing some focus groups. Um, so can you can you talk a bit about how all of that worked together to and, and what the output of that was? Yeah, so the first thing I'll say is that when we did our ethnographies, we had a couple of lucky strikes. We, 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 you know, another thing we also we also went into the the project thinking that the the kind of underserved or undocumented would be the um, would be the trickiest to reach. But then we got an invitation to go to a food bank, and it was yeah. fantastic. And it was like that that's almost beyond the. You know that that was not about recruiting somebody or setting up a time to meet them, which you normally have to do when you're doing these things. It was a pretty much spontaneous arrival, and it was just it's just a beautiful thing because these people were lovely and had their own community. And the issue wasn't really with those people because there was there was a lot of talk, a lot of knowledge. It was it was and also they were in one place, so you knew where to go to talk to them. The issue was more the people who had a little bit of money. We we used to we used to phrase enough money to make bad choices, right? Mm -hmm. So there were the people who'd you know be in their house, get in their car, go to their work, but not anymore. But you know, get in their house, go to the get in the car, go to their work, get back in their car, come back, and just we're in this kind of in this kind of bubble in a way. So that leads me to you know some of the other things we we did with it. So the research also helped us. It, it helped us with the creative thinking, and and it helped us with some media thinking as well. So for example, and how do we kind of burst that bubble of people who really need to think about this issue? Um, it really helped us get a good start on some of the analytics as well. So it helped in those ways, that kind of ripple effect. And I think it also helped with Alan and his team yes. because there was a rigor and there was a real, in you know, there was real people in the room who we could point to. So whenever we got in those sticky conversations, any sticky conversations about how do we know this is the case? Well, here is the family who, and here is the mother and daughter who. So it gave us credibility um, in a way that, you know, you, we don't, we earned it, right? We earned it because we did the work. You, you know, you've got to earn the credibility. So I think it gave us that. Yeah, yeah. That, that's something I don't think we, we talk enough about, right? Which is, um, if you want to do breakthrough work, um, you, you've actually got to sell it in to the organization to be able to get it out in market. Yeah. yeah. And, and this type of, of rigor and research, um, Christian, that your team did 
really set it up so that it was not a subjective conversation. It wasn't, we really like this creative. It was this, these are the people that we are trying to reach and this is how they respond to the creative. Um, And so that did really help us through that process because it isn't a one and done. It's a continual selling process to make sure that the creative and, and the program doesn't get watered down before you get it to market. So the ethnographers gave us a really good direction on that compass. And mm-hmm. then we then we were able to do some of the other work with media analytics and so forth and creative. And then, to your point about other, other research we did, we did some more tactical research. We had a couple of different creative ideas and we researched those ideas in a more conventional way with focus groups. But we knew we were on the right lines because we had that they in some ways we always went back to the ethnographies mm-hmm. as a kind of as a kind of as a measure or as a, a kind of a, a, a kind of evaluation tool you know is the work doing would is the work that we're sharing would it work amongst the people we met a few weeks ago mm-hmm. you know that was always a good guide for us and then we did these we did the focus groups and we learned some more more from the focus groups really around which were the best ideas to go with and how which how we how should we make them better to kind of optimize them mm-hmm. um and that was the other kind of you know and in a way that was like best practice textbook use of informative um exploratory research at the front end the ethnogra- ethnographies what's the product out of all that thinking and all that creativity well it's these ideas let's check those out and make sure they're matching the original intent which is what happened and there we go it was really very good from all you know all sides yeah yeah and and if eventually when we got it to market we had some really strong results um a lot of engagement a lot of um, a lot of interest and conversion, signing people up for more information and funneling people into the diabetes uh, prevention program. Um, anything else about Chi that you want to that you want to hit on, Christian? I, I'm a, I, one I'm, well, only just to say it was a fantastic partnership. I mean, yeah. I, know Alan, I know Alan's over there, but you know, great job to him and the entire team because it, these things take a little bit of courage from all parties, yes. right? Um, you know, to do breakthrough work, to to do something a little different. Research really helps with that, but it also takes good folk who can see the, you know, who, jo- who join the team, so to speak. So that's anything I've really got to add. Is there anything I'm missing? I don't think so. No, no, I, I would I would echo that for sure. It was a great team to work with and and work that we're really proud of. Some work that we're we're very proud of, actually. And Alan is right. If you if you watch the video, the song will be in your head forever, <laughs> which is great. Um, so, uh, you know, Christians, sometimes um, we're not lucky enough to have all the time in the world to be able to do this or, um, you know, the budgets to be to be able to dig in um, in the way that ethnographic research can can sometimes require. What are some alternatives um, that people could think about um, or that you can um, you can turn to if you don't have the time or the or the budget for eth- ethnographies. So here's here's a good one, and I don't think we use this enough. I really don't think we use it enough. It's to do I call them digital ethnographies, or they can be called virtual ethnographies. Mm-hmm. So what you can do, and technology allows us to do this, is to um, is to set up a platform for someone, whatever that platform, all sorts of things, the examples will make it clear. And then you ask them to record their life or their interactions with health care Mm -hmm. or with health or with their food or with their exercise, whatever the whole thing. 
um, and just record it. So whether it's through a text or whether it's through a blog post or whether it's like I'm speaking to camera and sending it to you, or whether it's um, a little a, a little audio track or whether it's a you know email or whatever it is, there are so many ways for people to record their life mm-hmm. that we can set up these kind of virtual or digital ethnographies over a number of weeks. And then if we do that, it, it isn't you know it's not as good as in person but it yeah. is cheaper um and mm-hmm. it, you know and you know, mix of the two might be perfect and you what you can do is instead of spending all that time with somebody is interview them at the beginning perhaps in the middle uh, perhaps at the end or check mm-hmm. in with them once a week for an hour or two and then talk about their journal like a digital journal in a way for mm-hmm. that week and then perhaps the, the next week go and the next week go and i think we you know it's a re- that is really easy to do and is really inexpensive and i think could really be you know powerful in a way that we don't think about terribly often yeah i like the idea that you talked about there christian too and maybe pairing that even with the traditional ethnographic research to allow more scale Um, and particularly if you're looking at multiple markets versus a focused market um it allows you to to kind of spread out your reach yeah. Um, in, in a way that would be tougher if, say, it's a national campaign or a regional campaign versus versus a, a particular geographical area. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think there's so much potential in that. Um, anything else before we um, before we wrap here, Christian? Any other thoughts? Only one um, that I think if you're even if you don't commission this sort of research, having your ears and eyes open all the time. And watching and listening to people, you know, if you're in the health system or the hospital, I think marketers could do a lot worse than just wander down to the lobby yeah. or the reception or walk around the corridors or get out sometimes and do your own form of watching, listening, talking, asking. I mean, many people who are waiting for their appointment are like captive and, you know, with a polite introduction and a, a good question you've got five or 10 minutes of time, someone's time, perhaps more, Yeah. perhaps follow them around a little bit, talk to them a little bit more, ask people to, if it's okay to join them. And I think these little things can provide a very short time. One, a little window in the day from the kind of slog of what we do, but also a mm-hmm. terribly insightful little window in the day, which reminds us why we're here. You know? That's right. That's right. So I'd encourage all everyone on the call and to, just try that, you know, 10 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day. What is it? It's hardly anything, but it might be the best 10 or 20 minutes of the day. That's a great thought. And, and I think with that, um, we are going to, um, to wrap for today. Um, Christian, thank you. Such good, such good insight here. Um, and really appreciate, um, you sharing your experience with us. Um, and thank you, Gretchen, for doing such a great job standing in for Chase and for, for prepping us today. Um, please let us know, um, if there's anything that you'd like us to cover, any other topics you'd like us to dig into, um, either about research or, or other, um, other challenges that you're facing. Um, you can post that in the chat tool here, um, or you can shoot us an email at nonormal at thinkrevivehealth.com. Um, and remember to visit thinkrevivehealth.com slash no dash normal. Um, for a recording of today's episode. Um, all right. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, and uh, until next week, good luck out there uh, in the no normal. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs>